Hello everyone, Matt here, and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 610, entitled The Package. This is the 113th episode of the series, and there are eight to go. A quick feedback reminder, you can always say hello to me on Twitter when I'm looking back lost, leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. Leave a comment on the listener line, 732-707-1815. And last, but certainly not least, you can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. And indeed, that's what David did, who sent me a lovely email this week, which I will share right now. He says, thanks for a great podcast. I found it while looking for something to accompany my rewatching of the show on Netflix, and now can't imagine one without the other. I particularly enjoy your art of screenwriting explanations of how the writers create the drama through their deliberate choice in the way they tell the story. I remember Carlton Cuse regularly talking about their desire to simply tell a story on the official Lost podcast way back when. You also shed light on many of the characters and their role in the story, which I had not previously thought about. David goes on to say, I can't agree with your views of Juliet, though. Even on a rewatch, and even with your positive reflections on the character, her initial island personality still comes across to me as self-confident to the point of smugness. I always found it difficult to accept that the nervous and sensitive science geek, sister-loving nerd Juliet, before she was recruited by Ben, became the super-smug, Latin-speaking, gun-toting ninja Juliet that we find three years later. However, I do like her final scene. David starts to wrap up by saying, I'm just starting season six and I'm catching you up slowly. Uh, I hope to be caught up in time for the final show, but have a problem as I think Netflix in the UK is cutting Lost out from their offering uh, on June 1st. Anyway, thanks again for enhancing Lost for me on this second run through. That's from David Rhodes in Hull, UK. So certainly, thank you so much, David, for that that lovely email. It's uh, it's so nice to always hear from listeners, and particularly uh, to have had such a such a, a weighty email from you. Um, as for Juliet, okay, I will admit three years is certainly an awful lot of time to go from the science loving geek to the gun toting ninja, as you mentioned. Um, flip side, you know, she is imprisoned there, imprisoned in a certain sense. So, you know, is there maybe some behind the scenes going on where she's, you know, doing those push-ups at night to build up her muscles and practicing her Latin with the other uh, others? I suppose. Um, is it perhaps also a result of having the uh, island character established and on screen well before you did her flashbacks? I think there's probably uh, something to that as well. Um, 
just in terms of the show, maybe not having those two parts oh completely uh, completely thought uh, when uh, when things were started. But anyhow, thank you again, David, for your wonderful email. I'll mention to everybody, by the way, as a side note, as uh, sadly looking back at Lost is in the uh, final the final episodes here. This the the first one where we are in single digits, the ninth from the end. This is uh, you may. Enjoy some of my other podcast adventures. There is the PH Geek podcast. If you search iTunes for PH Geek, you'll find the pop culture podcast that I do there with Pete and sometimes some other people. Uh, we're also uh, doing a, uh, a podcast on the TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which will be hitting ABC this fall. Uh, that will be simulcast on the pop culture podcast feed, as well as having its own uh, its own presence on iTunes. If you search for PH Geek, you'll also get uh, the uh, the Agents of Shield podcast by PH Geek, uh, which, as I said, it's its own podcast, or it'll be simulcast in the Pop Culture podcast. And uh, certainly hope to uh, to have some of you, many listeners, join me over there. Anyhow, enough about uh, other projects. Let's get to this week's episode, episode six ten, the package. The Wikipedia summary starts in 2004, the Flash sideways timeline at the airport. Jinsu Kwan is released by security after the incident about his undeclared $25,000 is resolved. His watch is returned, but the money is not, as Jin needs to fill out the paperwork declaring its purpose. Having missed his appointment at the restaurant, he checks into a hotel with Sun Hua Pike. In this Flash sideways timeline, Jin and Sun are not a married couple. Instead, they have become secretly romantically involved without the knowledge, presumably, of Mr. Pike, son's father. The next day, Martin Kimi and his associate Omar and translator Mikhail arrive at the hotel to collect the watch and the money. Since they lack the money, Sun offers to pay from a private account. Kimi sends her with Mikhail to get the money, but they learn that the account was closed by her father. Meanwhile, Jin is tied up in the storeroom at the restaurant, and Kimi reveals that the $25,000 was his payment for killing Jin, as Sun's father found out about the relationship with Sun. After Saeed shoots Kimi and his men, shown from his point of view in Sundown, Saeed finds Jin tied up. He hands Jin a box cutter uh, to free himself and leaves. When Mikhail returns with Sun, Jin holds him at gunpoint. Mikhail fights back, and in the ensuing struggle, Jin shoots him fatal in the eye. Sun is also hit by stray fire. As Jin picks Sun up to take her to the hospital, she reveals that she is pregnant. In the 2007 original timeline, we are on the beach where Ilana is waiting for Richard Alpert to return, confident that he will know what to do, despite his claim otherwise. Meanwhile, Sun, upset by her inability to find Jin, storms off to her garden. There, she is greeted by the man in black, who offers to take her to Jin. Unwilling to trust him, she runs to the beach, knocking herself out against a tree branch along the way. Benjamin Linus finds her alone, and the head injury has left her unable to speak English, though still able to understand it. Richard returns with Hurley, having decided on a course of action. Knowing that the plane on Hydra Island is the only means for the Man in Black to escape, he intends to destroy it. Sun is vehemently opposed to the idea, having come to the island in order to retrieve Jin and take him home. Jack convinces her that they will find Jin and use the plane to get everyone home. Meanwhile, the Man in Black reveals to Claire that he needs to gather all the remaining candidates, 
or else he will not be able to leave the island. Before leaving to retrieve Sun, he notices Saeed is no longer able to experience any sort of emotion whatsoever. When the Man in Black leaves, the camp is attacked by the team hired by Charles Widmore. They tranquilize the entire group and take Jin to Hydra Island. Jin awakes inside room 23 and Zoe shows him a grid map, which the Dharma Initiative used to identify pockets of electromagnetism. Knowing that Jin was once a member of Dharma, Zoe asks Jin for his help, however Jin demands to see Widmore. The Man in Black, accompanied by Saeed, takes a boat to Hydra Island to confront Widmore. When Widmore denies having taken Jin, the Man in Black warns him that war has finally come to the island and returns to his camp. Saeed is left behind to spy on them. Widmore, Widmore is angry about the fact that Zoe has taken Jin ahead of schedule and orders her to bring the package from the submarine. Widmore gives Sun's digital camera to Jin, which has photos of his daughter. He explains that he has come to the island to stop the Man in Black from escaping, claiming that everyone they know would cease to exist should that happen. Widmore then tells Jin he needs to meet the package, a person who they brought to the island. The episode ends with Saeed spying on Widmore's team in the water and witnessing a drugged Desmond Hume being dragged out of the submarine. With that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. Certainly a curious episode to watch. I felt constantly that it wasn't quite living up to its uh, potential. I feel like we're so used to the most lovely stories being told by Sun and Jin, or with Sun and Jin. Um, stories that oftentimes are rather self-contained. Um, here, it's an interesting flash sideways. It's useful. It ties some things together. It answers the message or the question, how did Jin end up in that little uh, storage room refrigerator thing? Um, but it's not particularly a strong flash sideways it's not a particularly strong uh you know Ilana and company story it's not particularly strong with the man in black it's essentially this is an episode that is saying certain things that need to be said placing other things where they need to be placed for later use and that's the purpose of the episode but anyhow let's get into it the episode opens with a tense recap of Flashback Jin getting pulled aside at LAX, Richard's wife's message that Ricardus must stop the man in black from leaving the island, and the return of Widmore. Uh, and indeed, we also have the presence of Team Widmore and Sawyer's recon to let everyone fight it out. It is, in short, a jam-packed previously on Lost. The episode proper opens with grainy night vision footage apparently taken on the sly of Camp Smokey. Certainly a unique and eye-catching opening to, I, I think, show that the series is not tired after the previous 112 other openings. With that, Smokey sits down and uh, starts to nicely chat up uh, old Jin about the need for the all the potential candidates, Quans of one sort or another, uh, to be leaving together. And hey, that means that they're going to have to get Sun first. With that, the story flashes sideways to Sun at the airport, looking all drab in that day one outfit, the brown sweater. Jin exits his questioning by those TSA types who, of course, give him back the watch, but not the money. Uh, and you can tell that he's had a rough go of it all because his tie is undone. Thanks, costumers. Jin complains that he's already missed a meeting at 
the restaurant. Obviously, first-time viewers are supposed to sit there and say, get it, Kimi's restaurant. And uh, they cut to checking into the hotel separately, one for Pike and one for Quan. The music leads kind of with a mysterious tinkle. And when I say leads, the music kind of leads our emotions. As I've heard it said, music is supposed to do. Music is the last opportunity for the creators to um, uh, tell us how we're supposed to feel, impact our emotions, however you want to word it. Um, and usually it's the first um, the first indicator after a moment, you know, when there's the big shock. That's when we get the, you know, the Giacchino vibrato strings to tell us, oh my goodness, the world is a miss. And here, the minute, uh, one for Pike and one for Quan, we have this mysterious tinkle telling us, it's a mystery because, hey, they're not really married, which, of course, is like what they just said. So it's not quite that much of a mystery. By the way, I wanted to mention there's a nice performance out of the, the small character of the check-in guy who is a tad embarrassed for having assumed that they were married. I think there's some added irony there that, you know, of course, we would assume that they're married because, uh, you know, they're great love and whatnot. But um, it's kind of nice where it's kind of a, Oh, gee whiz, sorry, here's your here's your reservation, Mr. Kwan. And just this little extra smile on his face where he's kind of like, oops, I just did something that wasn't good. Anyhow, the story moves back to Camp Smokey, uh, with Smokey Lock hanging out on a, or pardon me, heading out on a nighttime errand. And uh, he leaves Saeed in charge, but not before the dead-eyed Saeed verbalizes what we have been quietly whispering for a number of episodes. I don't feel anything. Excuse me? Anger, happiness, pain. I don't feel it anymore. Maybe that's best, Saeed. It'll help you get through what's coming. As I've said in the past, it's painful to see Saeed like this. We have many flawed heroes on the show, but Saeed, in my mind, is at or near the top uh, in terms of his heroic actions that we see on island. Yes, he comes with some of the biggest baggage in terms of his history, you know, as a torturer. <laughs> Don't mean to discount that, but in terms of who do you want to be in a, be with in a jam? Who could save you? I think Saeed is at the top of that list. Anyhow, with Locke having headed out, Jin notices that Smokey Locke is gone and starts to pack up, saying, in a wonderful bit of dialogue, that he's leaving while, quote, that thing, close quote, meaning Locke, is gone. It's very evocative of the idea that just around the edges, our heroes can see a monster in him, uh, or kind of out of the corner of their eye, that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, metaphorical sense. Sawyer tries to prevent Jin from leaving, and just as soon as they start to you know, have a heated discussion, Jin gets hit by a dart, then Sawyer, then others, and soon the whole camp is falling and passing out. And it's at this point that the very opening of the show starts to make sense. Their uh, identity is led by the whirring, falling strings that Chikino has used before with Widmore's sub. Indeed, the teaser act ends with Jin being scooped up, by Zoe, who is there to find Jin. You know, because it's a Jin and Sun episode, duh. We get the title card, then the beach, with Miles and Lapidus playing cards, which 
basically is a quick shot to establish them being in there, and then they really don't do much for the rest of the episode. After that, we get some dialogue where Ben is recapping that they're just sitting around, that Richard said that they were in hell and left. Uh, not that they left hell, that Richard left. Uh, Elana joins in on the recap by by saying that she trusts Hugo, who went to go find Richard. All right, is everyone caught up? At this point, Sun, who I think is clearly annoyed at the recap, I mean, non-action, she stabs her knife into the table and storms off. Story follows her to her garden, now overgrown. Then what happens next? Jack comes to recap more. There was a lighthouse and a mirror and names and candidates. Why lost why? This is an imperfect episode, but this makes it all the more imperfect. I know all this stuff. I watched for the last couple weeks. And if I didn't, that's why you have your previously unlost. If you can't tell it in there, just move on. There's one nugget, though. Jack is talking about uh, their presence on the island having a purpose. And though he's quickly cut off by a crying son, um, it is nice to just kind of see that Jack indeed has evolved into a man of faith. I said in a previous uh, episode that when uh, when Jack and Richard are in the the bowels of the, the Black Rock and Jack is waiting to see will the dynamite explode or not, in my mind, he closes his eyes as somebody who's struggling with man of man of faith, man of science. Um, and then when that faith is paid with the dynamite not exploding, he opens his eyes as a man of faith. Uh, not wholeheartedly, of course, but that, that kind of is his new normal. And I think that we're seeing more of that normal here. Anyhow, uh, Jack gets cut off by a crying son, which lets us transition to Jin in Flash, uh, Flash Sideways, uh, knocking on the door of Sun's hotel. Between them, there's just wonderful banter, uh, even with us kind of, you know, forced to be reading the subtitles. Jin wants to be the dutiful lieutenant and return the watch now at 11.30 p.m., and Sun unbuttoning the top of her sweater and giving Jin a hard time about how she, he shouldn't be ordering her. Though, Love, sweet love starts to bloom when Sun makes sure that he doesn't want that top button buttoned, nor the next one, or the next one, or the next one. And my oh my, how we see again how Sun fills out that shirt that she's quickly no longer wearing. With that, they fall into bed and meow. Back to the island, Sun is tending her garden still and cuts herself. Then Smokey Lock shows up with promises aplenty. Indeed, the devil getting ready to make another deal. I promised you I would reunite you two. It took me a little longer than I thought it would. But he's with my people back at my camp across the island. I can take you to him right now. I don't believe you. You killed those people at the temple. Those people were confused. They were lied to. I didn't want to hurt them. Any one of them could have chosen to come with me. And I'm giving you that choice, son, right now. I would never make you do anything against your will. I'm asking you, please, come with me. Jin is waiting. Did you catch in there 
the again how we have that lovely undercurrent of Smokey's tempestuous nature they could have come with me before I killed him gee whiz that kind of stamping his foot saying come on come on but that son starts to run away and uh, the location of the chase the location that they shoot the chase in that, that is to say it has these tall grasses that have thin light tops that catch the sun it's really a remar- re- remarkable uh, location and there's a neat bit of editing too as sun is running the flash sideways sound is heard letting the viewer conclude that we're going to stop mid chase uh, which you know wouldn't be that particularly unusual for lost then sun hits her head on a low uh, branch and she's out cold at that point we've completely flashed sideways uh, to sideways sun waking up get it knocked asleep waking up uh, she's all glowy in the next morning sort of sense and she has a close-up with that there's a wider shot that i don't know how intentional this is because you know we're going to learn in this scene that, that they I've had a secret romance for some time, but she's kind of all, you know, waking up after an evening of passion. And then the, the wider shot just shows Jin sitting straight up uh, against the headboard, just looking like, oh, what did I do? This is not good. He just looks like, you know, this poor guy has had his world rocked. And now, you know, now he's done, <laughs> done the deed. Anyhow, the dialogue that unfolds, I think, is settling to us. They aren't strangers, really. They have been in love in secret. Aw. And that's why Jin was so overly concerned, uh, so guilt-ridden about Sun's undone button and uh, the need for two, two rooms, as he had told the check-in guy with emphasis. With that, there's a knock on the door, and I think there's kind of a sense where... We need a bit of a reminder that this is Sun's room. Let's not forget. Um, and as Sun fixes her hair, her hair in the mirror, there's a little moment I think where, almost behind her eyes, she seems to have a glimmer of recognition. It's akin to Kate hearing Aaron's voice in what Kate does. Uh, oh, pardon me, not Aaron's voice. Uh, hearing the name Aaron in what Kate does, and it's also akin to Jack poking it around at his appendix scar. It's just one of these little sticky moments done just long enough to be there just long enough for the brain to say you know i think there's something familiar oh but there is something one at the door let's think about that later um just that briefest a moment certainly not long enough to say you know she is noticing her past life and love anyhow who's been knock knock knocking at the chamber door the quite undead kimi who charmingly yet sneakishly moseys on in and in that moment of tension we, of course, start to head back to the island. Why conclude a tense moment on the show? Let's go to another scene. Uh, as we head back to that island story, we kind of start to enter one of the stranger show decisions of the entire series. That, because Sun has had a bum on the head, she can now only speak Korean. On that odd note, Locke returns to his camp to find everyone out for the count, Courtesy, courtesy of those stunny darts. He wakes up his uh, reliable Lieutenant Saeed, who tells of being attacked. And it's a nice touch that Smokey Locke has already figured out who's missing, Jin, and presumably why, because he's a candidate. Indeed, the scene ends with Smokey saying, where's Jin? With that, we cut to Jin. Jin in a pretty familiar looking room, kind of a nice little... Uh, 
echo of uh, sets used in the past. Uh, the room ends up being the infamous Room 23. There's a cutesy moment where Jin turns on the special Room 23 light show, and Zoe questions Jin about his Dharma days. Um, it's, you know, there's also a fun moment where Jin ups the ante and says he'll only talk to the head guy, Widmore. Zoe ups it back by saying that Widmore wants to talk to him, so it's kind of nanny nanny poo poo back to Jin. The story then returns to Camp Smokey, where petulant Claire pitches a fit with Daddy Smokey Locke, saying that since her name isn't on the wall, no one needs her, not even Locke. Wah! There is, to be fair, a bit of pathos behind it. Claire is concerned that Aaron won't remember her. They land on that story point for just about as long as it takes to say that sentence. With old Claire always getting only the best for characterization, um, then Smokey suggests to Claire that after Kate has helped him get the other three candidates, whatever happens, happens. Just in case it's implied, Claire wants to get rid of Aaron's adopted mommy with a little knife between Kate's ribs. With that, we have an amusing little moment where Sawyer calls out to Smokey as needing a boat to go to Hydron Island uh, on account of being all flying smoke and such. It is, I think, just window dressing for the fans. Sawyer's asking our question. Uh, but the answer confirms that Smokey Lock does indeed need a boat, which also further helps explain why he can't just leave. Water being some sort of barrier here. The act concludes with Smokey saying he's going to Hydra Island to get Jin back. With that, the story, uh, well, we have the break, and then we return in a tense flash sideways where Kimi gets his watch. Then, along with the return again of old Omar, uh, they find Jin now pant, uh, panted, but still shirtless, hiding in the bathroom. Kimi wants his money, but as he notes with kind of vague racism, Talking to Sun and Jin makes him feel like he's in a Godzilla movie. Korean, Japanese, hey. So who do they send for? Why, it's Danny's friend who speaks nine languages. Mikhail! Good to see him again. Good to see him with both our eyes, in fact. And the fact that it's really him, too, that they don't just kind of make reference in the background. It's just, it's an especially nice touch that they brought back that actor. With that, there's a scene where they all play a game of telephone, you know, Korean to English, English to Korean. Um, and this is made all the more tense, despite it being kind of a lackluster scene in and of itself. All the more tense because we know Jin gets caught and we know that Saeed finds him, which is, of course, what uh, gets set up in the conversation with Sun going to the bank and Jin the restaurant. Flash sideways over, we return to the Survivor Beach where they exposition and really, really make the situation clear albeit with some great jokes along the way. What? Well, for the fourth time, I was gathering mangoes and she was already unconscious when I found her. Why won't you believe me? Because you're speaking. You got a pretty decent sized bump. Might be a slight concussion. You can understand what I'm saying, but you can only speak Korean. Adele. She hits her head and forgets English? We're supposed to buy that? Ask the man who communes with the dead. It might be aphasia. It's um, a condition that's caused by trauma and it affects the language center of your brain. But it's usually temporary. Son, you're gonna be okay. What are you smiling about? 
Everyone clear on the nature of aphasia now? Good, because the show quickly moves on. We see that backlit by sun, Richard and Hurley appear, and the scene abruptly ends with Richard declaring that they're leaving. This really is an episode that feels tremendously piecemeal. We never stay with one particular storyline for all too long. Anyhow, the story moves to Locke getting out of the boat because, you know, paddling across that little channel is uh, boring and Locke appears alone. I think that it's at this point that first-time viewers start to kind of remember back to that tidbit earlier of uh, Locke, Smokey Locke, confirming that Saeed is a good swimmer and uh, making sure that the gun he's given Saeed is wrapped in plastic to keep it dry. There's just kind of everything starting to click because, hey, Saeed's not in the boat. Smokey approaches the mini sonic fence and is met with a few futile gunshots, and uh, he walks down the line to meet his welcoming party. At this, there's a nice long shot of many sonic fences and the Ajira tail sticking up out of the background. There's also a nice reveal of Widmore, whose face is blocked by Locke's head, and as the camera moves, Widmore appears. There's also great dialogue as well, Widmore declaring that Smokey isn't Locke, but uh, what does he know? Well, he, what he knows otherwise is myth and legend and noises in the night. Great phrase there. The scene ends with Smokey saying that someone, Widmore, once declared war was coming to the island, and now it's here. Back to Survivor Beach, Richard spells out, The action! Destroy the plane! Ready, team? And also lots of either recap exposition or... Here's the plan exposition in this episode. Not, not the finest hour. Anyhow, that leads to an impassioned monologue by Sun in Korean about how she's here to find Jin, not save the world. It's some fantastic acting out of Yun Jin Kim, albeit interspersed with blank reactions from everyone else who doesn't understand her. At this point, we flash sideways to Sun and Mikhail at the bank, discovering that her account has been closed by Dad. Why? Why do you think, asks Mikhail. Cut to Jin, being put in a storage area or refrigerator. It doesn't look particularly cold. Not quite sure. Anyhow, the implication there is nice, the cinematic implication. It's been closed by Dad. Why would Dad do this? Why do you think? Cut to Jin. The implication is, or we even are told, Jin uh, and Sun had been found out. Anyhow, we see that Jin uh, has been left by Omar, a tad bloodied, and the former sent to go collect, quote, the Arab, close quote, Omar noting that he's Arab too, uh, and Kimi caringly cleans Jin's wounds and monologues. Omar's loyal, but he lacks attention to detail. You don't really understand a word I'm saying to you right now, do you? Nothing. All right. Just hold still, okay? I'm going to strap you in here. Just in case you figure out what's about to happen, the I can't have you freaking out. I don't think you realized how unhappy Mr. Peck was when he found out that you were doing his little girl. You know the 25 grand that you were supposed to deliver? That was my fee for popping you. From what I hear, you know, anyone who works for Peck knows the cardinal rule. Hands off the boss's daughter. But you, you couldn't resist her, could you? 
heart wants, what the heart wants. Thank you. I'm sorry. Some people just aren't meant to be together. Kimi is so wonderful. His monologue filled with drippy care, genuine concern, and the cold-blooded determination to kill Jin in due course. Just a, a magnificent scene. With that, the story moves to Widmore dressing down Zoe for taking Jin. Though soon enough, Jin shows up and they get to brass tacks. Widmore, the former baddie showing Jin, a digital camera with pictures of Jin's thus unseen daughter, Jiun. Extra points for having uh, what really appears to be Bopo the dog in some of the pictures, by the way. You know, Daniel Day Kim rarely gets the close-up on loss, his moment to shine. Here he does, and his acting is heartfelt and wonderful. And Widmore is shown that he's uh, continuing to evolve away from being the baddie. Uh, and he notes, in fact, that both men have a daughter, and the desire for family drives both. He adds that to let, quote, the thing, close quote, off the island would mean the end of both and all daughters. With that, they're off to see the package, who we're told is not a what, but a who, and the shock of that ends the act. So now we've ended on a moment of tension, so why return to it? After the break, Sideways Jin is in the cooler still. He hears Saeed kill Kimi and Omar, then gets uh, uh, rescued by Saeed. The wise Saeed, who needs time to escape, is kind enough to hand Jin uh, a razor in order for Jin to cut himself out. Thank you very much. With that, Saeed sneaks off, and the story moves to Mikhail and Son sneaking into the kitchen to find Kimi and Omar dead. Well, actually not quite dead, as it turns out that Kimi is still alive, alive enough to say that Jin is behind Mikhail. That a fun little fight ensued, ensues, including two gunshots that we don't see particularly hitting anything. It's shot off camera. No problem there, right? And as Mikhail reaches for a knife, Jin shoots him. In the eye. R.I.P. Patchy. You just weren't meant to have two eyes in this world or the next. With that, yippee, the tension is over. And in a great camera move, triumphant Jin is revealed to be in trouble. For the camera moves aside to, to show Sun hit and bloodied. As Jin takes her out for some sort of help, she reveals she's pregnant. It really is wonderful that in this sideways story, they're slowly moving together more and more uh, into the path that they had in life. Anyhow, with the sideways story over, Jack talks up Sun, giving her a notepad, saying that just because you can't speak doesn't mean you can't write, right? Indeed she can, and it feels so darned writerly. They've given her a way to interact with everyone. And indeed, the writerliness continues. Jack has found in Sun's garden a tomato, a tough tomato, one that uh, didn't know it was supposed to die. So I guess that makes our heroes tomatoes? From there, the odd choice to have Sun be English mute continues. Jack asks her why she didn't go with Locke, and she writes that she didn't trust him. 
Yeah, that's definitely better than saying it with, you know, words. Anyhow, Jack uh, ends up talking her into come with them all, and she joins them, because in part, of course, the show would be no fun with her sitting on the beach alone. With that, the story heads back to Camp Smokey, where Kate and Sawyer are chatting it up uh, about how Smokey and Widmore just should about have destroyed each other at this point, except... But I got a feeling this is almost over. Because if Locke rode over there on the boat with Saeed, then Charlie Widmore blew him right out of the water. And what if he didn't? Well, then we're screwed six ways from sun. Oh, hell. He's alone. Thought you went over there to find Jen. They said they didn't have him. And you believe that? No. Where's Saeed? you lose him, too? When you were over there, James, you mentioned that Widmore had someone guarding a room on his submarine. Guarding something they didn't want you to see. Yeah, so. I don't like secrets. This line cuts both ways, of course. Sawyer has his secrets from Smokey, after all. With that, the story moves to the sub-dock as Saeed slowly swims up. Watching first from afar, then closer and closer as Zoe and friend wrangle out the package. What? It's a guy you hardly stand. Well, what do you expect? At this point, it is indeed clear that the package is Desmond. How much did you give him? Obviously, I gave him too much, but we needed him knocked out for the trip. Come on, get him up. Let's go, Mr. Hume. Desmond here looks worse for wear and kind of squints at Saeed in confusion. And with that, now we're sure for sure that the package is, that the namesake of the episode has been revealed to us. A reveal that happened in the last 30 seconds of the episode. It's a soft ending, to be sure. A soft ending to a strange episode. It's one that's not quite worth the title, if you ask me, nor is it kind of up to snuff with that normal emotional nature of a Sun and Jin episode. Ultimately, this is a transition episode, and those are needed, but in a season that has so many A's and A-pluses, this just kind of feels rather middle-of-the-road B. With that, though, let's take a look at Lostpedia for the bits and pieces I have missed, and there certainly are uh, a number of interesting facts here. The first is that in the premiere broadcast in the United States on March 30th, 2010, a large red V and countdown timer appeared on the lower part of the screen during most of the episode, promoting the ABC series V. This promotion obscured what Sun was writing on the notepad toward the end of the episode. Also, a non-HD screen, 3-4 aspect ratio, uh, would lead to some of her uh, writing be cropped out as well. As you can imagine, several fan websites expressed annoyance at this watermark, and Damon Lindelof himself agreed with their sentiments on Twitter. I mean, my goodness, is there not somebody at ABC who maybe just can fast forward through the entire episode to see if there's anything going on there, or maybe is at the control booth of Central Command or something, and the minute that you see, hey, I can't see that, you kind of take the, it's called a bug, those, those... things to put on top of the on top of the image. You can't take the bug down. Oh well. 
Anyhow, here's a really interesting tidbit, one that I don't remember happening to me on the initial watch. Certainly, I don't remember, I, you know, certainly didn't happen on the rewatch. Many fans misheard Kimi say to Jin in the Flash Sideways timeline, I'm going to strap you in here just in case you figure out what's about to happen to the island. Can't have you freaking out. That's what many fans misheard. The line is actually, just in case you figure out what's about to happen to you, I blah, 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 blah. I can't have you freaking out. This has been confirmed. This proper dialogue has been confirmed by the ABC uh, episode recap and the Jorge Garcia podcast, Geronimo Jack's Beard. Uh, further, Lindelof and Cuse confirmed April 15th, 2010, that Kimi did not say the island. Um, I don't know how, I mean, I didn't mishear it, so whatever, but I don't know how the possibility of that being misheard could have uh, got, got into the final cut. Anyhow, the final bit of uh, trivia here. This episode makes us assume that Sun and Jin are intimate the same night as the Oceanic 815 flight and that the next day they're busted by Kimi. However, according to Desmond's comment in Everybody Loves Hugo and Sawyer in The Last Recruit, those events may have happened a week apart from each other. Since uh, in The Last Recruit, Sun arrives at the hospital at the same time Locke does. Is there bound to be a bit of a soft edge for these stories to meet? Sure. Doesn't particularly bother me. Last bit of trivia here. Mikhail is referenced to by Kimi as Danny's friend. A possible reference to the Flash Sideways incarnation of Danny. With that, everybody, before we look ahead next week, I just wanted to mention that this podcast originally was being uh, uploaded and uh, debuting online on May 23rd. 2013 this is of course being the third anniversary of the series ending uh, certainly a uh, a time to think back to the show as it was but to be fair haven't we all been doing that together for the last 112 113 episodes together and indeed let's look ahead to next week next week is 611 happily ever after after that the beloved 612 everybody loves hugo 613 the last recruit been on and on and on as we get ever closer to the end so with that everybody happy third anniversary of the end of lost happy bittersweet etc and best wishes to you all and i'll talk to you all again next week take care everybody and bye bye <laughs>